welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This week, Ruth Francis talks to Henry Marsh and Jim Olson about their careers in medicine. Henry Marsh, author of the bestseller Do No Harm, talks about his career as one of the UK's leading neurosurgeons, and Jim Olson, a paediatric oncologist from Seattle Children's Hospital, shares his pioneering research on tumour paint, a new technique in the field of fluorescent image-guided surgery and the potential it has to transform brain surgery. Hi, good evening. Um, thanks for coming out tonight, as Martin said. Um, we're really lucky um, to have a couple of fantastic speakers with us this evening. Um, I think a lot of you will know um, Henry Marsh, and probably a lot of you have read his wonderful book, Do No Harm. Um, and so you already know that he has fantastic stories to tell, lots of experience, um, a career in neurosurgery, but also a lot of um, travels around the world and stories to tell. Um, and our other speaker, Jim Olson, is a paediatric oncologist in Seattle. Um, and also, um, you know, from speaking to him, I know that his life has revolved around patients and a community of patients. Um, and he's certainly doing some interesting things with... Um, with crowdfunding for his research. So um, I think we'll start by um, just finding out what, um, what Henry is going to talk to us about this evening. Um, I think you were going to talk to us a little bit about your career, how it came about, and uh, how you ended up as a neurosurgeon. Um, yes, no, I, I, um, I came from a completely non-scientific um, family. My father was a, actually a very eminent human rights lawyer. My mother was a political refugee from Nazi Germany. Um, and it was kind of automatic. I had a standard upper-middle-class education, went to a leading public school, then went to Oxford to read politics, philosophy, and economics. So then, in fact, I took a two-year... I was already a bit restless then, and I took a two-year gap year on leaving school and spent one year teaching in a remote corner of West Africa and six months editing medieval Latin customs documents in, the pu in Latin <laughs> in, in the public record office and another six months working on an adventure playground in Notting Hill before it all got turned into new housing development. But after two years of, of PPE at Oxford, I, for various reasons, some of them rather stupid, um, erotic, romantic ones, um, <laughs> I, I had what used to be called a sort of nervous breakdown and ran away, much to my parents' understandable distress. And I went to work as an operator, as a hospital porter in the operating theatres through a connection of a friend of mine, in, in one of the last mining towns in England called Ashington, north of Newcastle. Um, and while there, I, I decided, well, the solution to my existential problem was to become a doctor. I mean, in effect, I, I was wanting still to have a respectable middle-class career, but one of my own choosing. And also, I'd always like using my hands, and I thought surgery looked rather, rather super. Although I say in my book, I said it was a sort of controlled altruistic violence, which rather appealed to me. Um, so I was very lucky that I was my Oxford College. I thought, well, I wouldn't get into medical school if, um, if I flunked my first degree. And I was really very fortunate. I doubt it would happen nowadays. My college said I could come back. So I worked like mad for one year. And then on the got my degree. And on the basis of that, was accepted into the only medical school in London, which would take people without science A-levels. In fact, it was the last year they ran what was called a first MB course, which was essentially a crash course in um, science A-levels, but done in one year. And then you did the conventional 
medical course. Years later, as I was talking to Jim, I, I, many American um, residents, registrars, of course, in this country came to work in my department. Dare I say it, mainly it was me. Um, from America, from Seattle, where Jim works. So in fact, we have many, many colleagues in common. And I've always been very impressed by, there are many bad aspects to the American medical system, mainly of, e mainly of an economic nature. Um, but one of its strengths is medicine as a postgraduate degree. In effect, all, if you want to be a doctor in the States, you go to college, university first, and then go to medical school. And your first degree can be in virtually in anything because you don't have this absurd over-specialization in this country where you have to more or less decide, as I did at the age of 12, between <laughs> science, between science and, and classics. I spent years wasting my brain on, on ancient Greek and Latin, all of which I've forgotten. And I've, ne I've, I've never subscribed to the belief that it's a jolly good scholarly training. I think it's a complete waste of time, personally. <laughs> um, I, so anyway, I had an interview with the registrar of the medical school who asked me if I liked fly fishing, and he's, I said no. Uh, and then he said, well, you can start in two weeks' time. So <laughs> it's true. This is, this is true. It's, it's very different nowadays. But when I actually qualified as a doctor, I became quite sort of a bit depressed, really. I thought, well, actually, I, the only, I certainly couldn't be a physician. It just was, you know, I'm, I'm too restless and, uh, and, in a sense, energetic. And to be a physician, you have to be sort of slow and peaceful. And being a GP didn't appeal either. But the problem was the only surgery I'd seen was general surgery which in those days, this is almost 40 years ago, involved very large incisions and so horrible smells and big slippery body parts, which I didn't like at all. So, and then by coincidence, although in terms of what I did later with my life, it wasn't coincidental, my, my son, who was only three months old at the time from my first marriage, and had a brain tumour and he almost died. It was a benign tumour, a very, very rare tumour called a choroplexus papilloma, which normally, for reasons we don't know, only grows in the the left trigone of the ventricular system. And for some reason, in William's brain, it was in the third ventricle. Uh, and it was written up as a rare case. And by a weird coincidence, 12 years later, I removed the identical tumor from the seven-month-old girl when I was a pediatric neurosurgeon myself, also with the surname of Marsh. Um, I'm sure it means nothing, but it shows <laughs> strange coincidences do occur. Um, there was, it, was a very, it was a very horrible experience. Um, but in retrospect, in terms of my later career, I think a very useful experience. I, I don't know what sort of doctor I would have been if I hadn't had that experience. I'd like to, I think I'd have been jolly nice and compassionate and sympathetic. But it does make a very big difference if you're dealing with parents of children with horrible illnesses, if you've actually been there yourself. And it's quite curious. I found when I spoke to parents, and I'd meet them for the first time, and I mainly, this is mainly brain tumour that I was operating on, uh, and I'd tell them and discuss it. And then I'd say, somewhere in the conversation, I'd say, well, actually, my son had a brain tumour. I know what you're going through. And from then on, in a sense, I could do no wrong because they just knew I knew what they were feeling. And, of course, what's special, but also what's very difficult about paediatric brain surgery, and I was, when I was in Pakistan last week, I was with a very nice English surgeon who did paediatric cardiac surgery, which was equally tough and difficult. It's the overwhelming burden of the parents' anxiety. Operating on children is relatively easy in the sense it sounds crude, but actually the tissues separate very nicely. It's, it's really very nice operating, apart from the fact it's bloody dangerous. But, um, but, and also children as patients, as long as they're not in pain, on the whole, they're or very ill. They're, they're very cheerful. They, they haven't yet 
acquired the existential fear we all do when, when the sex hormones reach our brain at puberty uh, and the overwhelming fear of the parents. So in that sense, looking after children is a great joy. But for various reasons, I stopped doing the paediatric work 12 years ago. And I feel ashamed of the fact, but actually I don't miss it. Because it was such, once you stop doing it, you, you realise how, how, how difficult it is. Because, of course, anxiety is contagious. And you have to deal with the parents, help them through it, give them hope. At the same time, be honest and realistic with them. And you see terrible, terrible things happening. The, there's a great myth about brain surgery. And it's a myth I try to dispel a bit in my book, but it's terribly difficult and requires. And there was that, admittedly said about general surgery, there was that famous British surgeon at the turn of the 19th century called Lord Moynihan, who said that surgeons had to have nerves of steel, heart of a lion, hands of a woman. It's not true, actually. I suppose it helps. But um, what it re what it, what's really difficult about brain surgery is the decision-making is, is very dangerous. It's technically not terribly difficult. There are other branches of surgery, like ophthalmic surgery, which I've had. Um, with, eye surgery is, is actually much more exquisite. The instruments are finer. But what's special about brain surgery is the morbidity and the mortality, for that matter, is very great. So all operations are a question of balancing the risk of the operation against the risk of not operating or the alternatives to surgery. And the problem is often we don't know for sure. It's a lot of subjective judgment involved. And again, when you talk about the risks of an operation, strictly speaking, you should be talking about the risks of that operation done in your hands and your experience. And when you're a young surgeon, you won't have lots of experience. And you'll tend to quote the figures in the textbooks and in the international meetings. And we all know, you know the official figures for the risks of surgery are woeful underestimates because surgeons are chronically dishonest. <laughs> um, and, and there's a reason for that. First of all, patients want to be given hope. Patients don't want to feel that you know, their surgeon isn't very experienced or isn't very competent. Uh, and as, as a doctor, it's, it's breaking bad news is, is, is difficult. You shy, we all shy away from painful conversations. So it's very, easily, it's very easy to end up being a bit too optimistic. And, and when you're a medical student, it's very easy to feel compassion for your patients because you're not responsible for what happens to them. But as soon as you're a doctor, you start having to hurt patients. I mean, then years ago when I was a student, we did all the blood taking. Nowadays it's done by phlebotomists who are much more expert than medical students. So you'd stick needles into the poor patients and leave lots of bruises and patients would be wincing and you knew that actually you could ask one of the more experienced doctors and do it, they'd do it better. But if you, if you didn't do it, how are you ever going to improve yourself? And it's a problem, as I was mentioning to Jim before he came here, saying it's one of the great problems all surgeons face when you're a young independent surgeon, an attending in the States, a consultant in this country. If you don't take on the difficult cases, how do you ever get better? But at the same time, there may well be colleagues, actually, who are more experienced than you are. So we all have to make these sort of ethical compromises. We all have skeletons in our cupboard. And without wanting to... Um, completely destroy the public's confidence in the medical profession. One of the things I wanted to describe in my book is why it's so difficult to be honest and why, at the end of the day, honesty, actually, is probably the most important surgical virtue. Um, but there are so many reasons why it's, why it's difficult to be honest. One of the um, 
I, I, was one of the, I was the first person in Europe, actually, to um, <clears throat> do what are called awake craniotomies for tumor resection. It's a technique I'd picked up because of my American connections with a, a very experienced epilepsy, epilepsy surgeon at Seattle called George Ogerman, not directly from George, but from some of his trainees who'd worked with me in London. And there are this particular, this is leading on to what Jim will talk about. There is a particular variety of tumor called, called gliomas, and in particular, the slow-growing form of gliomas. These are tumors of the brain itself, true brain tumors. When talk, people talk about brain tumors, they're often talking about tumors not actually of the brain itself, tumors of the meninges pressing on the brain, or tumors of the cranial nerves, which also press on the brain. And they're clumped together as brain tumors, but they're involving the brain and not directly growing in it. Gliomas are derived from the glial cells, the so-called supportive cells that surround the, the neurons. It used to be thought they were a little different from polystyrene packing, rather like the 97% of non-gene-coding non DNA was thought to be junk DNA, and that's discovered with all sorts of functions. And the functions of glial cells are probably very complex, and they may even be involved in the transmission of the nerve impulse as well to some way, which was never thought, thought in the past. So the glial cells give rise to tumours. And there's a particular variety which lumped together under the name of low-grade gliomas, which mainly occur in young adults, and they are a slow death sentence. They present with epilepsy. <clears throat> so the patient is perfectly well, and they suddenly have a fit. You, and nowadays, if people have a fit, you do a brain scan. 20 or 30 years ago, um, when scanners were less sensitive and less available. If people had a fit, you'd pat them on there, they'd say, take the tablet cell trap, don't worry. And they knew some of them, not many of them, some of them would come back years later with the, with the signs and symptoms of a, of a rapidly fatal brain tumour. Because most of these low-grade gliomas eventually turn cancerous. And then, then the end comes quite quickly. Now, the problem with low-grade gliomas, as my old boss said, Queen Square used to say to patients is you have solid brain and solid tumour and then you have an area where the cells of the tumour are growing into the cells of the brain. And at the edge, whether you're using an operating microscope um, or, or not, and I, most people nowadays, I always use a microscope, you can't really tell. And of course, as you go, you're, you're in tissue that is probably a tumour, but looks like brain. And if, you, if the patient's asleep under general anaesthetic, you obviously start to worry very early on that you may stray into what we call eloquent brain. That's part of the brain where if you damage it, people are obviously disabled rather than perhaps subtly disabled. We then call that silent brain. Um, and you stop. So you, but you always would find, if you then did a brain scan after the op, but you'd left lots and lots of tumour behind. So it struck me that, that if I had the patient awake while I was operating, so I could test for certain, you can't test intellect or personality or sense of humour during an operation, but you can test vision, although most of his tumours are not at the back in the visual areas, and you can test movement and you can test speed. So it was a technique of making the surgeon braver. So I know that I was still chewing, sucking out, you use a sucker. Brain surgery is distressingly crude often. <laughs> um, and you suck out the tumour and probably some brain tissue, but the patient remains well and you'd end up removing more of the tumour. But you still when you get a brain scan after the op, you'll almost invariably still find you've left quite a lot of tumour behind. But it, then you have this huge problem of how accurate is the follow-up. Yes, if the patient can talk, if the patient can move, 
you can say the patient is neurologically intact. But obviously, there's more to life than just moving and talking. And yet, it's, it's, an, it's a cliche that if you look at many patients with psychological testing or look at their, what's happened to their marriage or their work years after brain surgery, many patients whom neurosurgeons consider to be a good result. In fact, have been there very disabled. So that the question of carrying out radical surgery for these tumours is very difficult. Um, and as the years went by, I, I actually became increasingly fatalistic and about it, and also increasingly sceptical about some of the results claimed, although I'd probably done more operating of this sort than anybody else in this country. Which is why I'm going to stop now, <laughs> and Jim will talk us about what he's been working on, which is a way of actually trying to differentiate with fluorescent micro microscopy while operating the difference between tumour and brain. So, yeah, thank you. Um, I should have probably mentioned to some of you at the beginning, some of Henry's book and some of his um, experiences are going to be quite visceral when he's describing them. So um, <laughs> there might be some discomfort for some of us. Um, but Jim, I know that your, you know, your work at the moment is looking at these kinds of tumours and um, helping surgeons like Henry to kind of differentiate between the tumour and the brain, which, as Henry has described, is, is very difficult. Um, and I know that you also have a connection, which is that Henry was working in Seattle and has had some of your um, colleagues over in London working with him. Mm -hmm. So um, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about why you're doing what you're doing, how you got there? Uh, so um, unlike Henry, I was four years old when I first knew that I wanted to be a doctor. We had a, uh, we had a family medical dictionary. And it had pages that were clear plastic pages with the layers of the body. And you could flip from the skin and then see the arteries and veins and then see the nerves. And, and I was so fascinated by that book that I was certain that this was what I was going to do. Uh, but I always thought that I would be a family physician and work in the rural area uh, where I grew up. Uh, but the fact was, as a medical student, in my third year, I took care of this little girl who was a seven-year-old child who, for reasons we never did figure out, was losing neurologic function a little bit more each day. Mm -hmm. Um, she lost some of her ability to move her eyes. She lost her ability to hear properly, a little bit each day. And it came to the day where it was very clear that she was going to stop breathing. And we had to make a decision whether to put her on a ventilator or not. And I talked with the family a lot about it, even though I was only a medical student. As, as Henry said, we're not responsible at that point. But we have these beautiful relationships with the family. And their family chose not to put her on a ventilator um, because they didn't want her to live a life that might be permanent. Uh, in that setting. And she passed away later that day. And <clears throat> as I was walking home from the hospital that night, I actually felt lighter than I usually did. I was humming to myself a little bit. I felt just a little bit better than usual. And it really surprised me because it was the first child that I had been taking care of who passed away. Mm -hmm. um, it had become very close to her and to her family during that uh, week and a half that we were taking care of her. So I went down by the river, and I just thought about why that was, that I was feeling better than I would have expected. And it occurred to me that at the end of the day, her parents, rather than leaving the hospital and getting as far away as they possibly could, they spent a very long time looking around the hospital until they found me. And when they found me, they said that the words that I had shared with them helped make it so that her death was as beautiful as her birth or her baptism. Wow. And that from me, they learned that a life can be seven days long or seven years long or 70 years long. What matters is the beauty that's in the, in the part of it. And so I realized that day that 
I had something to offer families when the medicine didn't go the way that we wanted it to go. And I tried very hard to remember that and bring it into my medical practice. And as Henry so eloquently points out in this book, a lot of times physicians put up barriers, both emotional barriers and sometimes they're not even intentional. They just see the patient as the sick one and themselves as the well one. Mm -hmm. And early on, I, I adopted the philosophy that I was going to let myself love every one of these children that I cared for and that it was going to be sad and difficult when they died. Uh, whether I let myself love them or not, so why would you rob yourself of the opportunity to become part of their family? And so each day uh, when I meet a new family, um, we become part of the same family, and we continue to be close uh, now 20-some years later. Um, each, each year, the people in my lab take a day off and cook dinner for all the families that we've cared for over the last couple decades. They come together, we have music and dancing, and we all stay very closely connected. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's been a very rich, rich experience because of that. Yeah. And so this is Hayden. He was one of the little guys that I took care of over two decades ago. <clears throat> and it was really Hayden uh, at his memorial service that helped me understand how to practice uh, my research. And the reason for that is because in many cases, people do research and the academic goals are based around writing manuscripts, getting grants, getting promoted, all of those are kind of the goals that are set out in front of us in academia. And it was at his memorial service that I clearly remember thinking, that has nothing to do with the reasons that I went into medicine or science. What I want to do are experiments every day that will help us understand how to change the way we practice medicine so that families don't have to go through what Hayden's family went through. And so each week I still go into clinic, and before I see my patients, I stop and think, what am I going to do today that I don't want to be doing in 20 years? And how can my lab have an impact on that? And so this particular case that I'm showing you up here is a case that I'm sure Henry has seen many, many slides like this. Um, on the left, you see an MRI scan. And you can tell that there's an abnormality there. And uh, those of us who have seen these before know that it's a tumor. But we can't tell exactly where it starts and where it stops. And now if each of you were to get into Henry's shoes and I were to hand you a scalpel or a sucker, and you were in the operating room, and this is what you were looking at, where would you start and where would you stop? The tumor is roughly here, and the motor cortex is roughly here, uh, but it's very difficult, as you can see, to tell the difference between the brain and the brain tumor in many cases, because the brain tumor is actually a normal brain that is growing too rapidly uh, and, and develops blood vessels and everything that makes it look a lot like normal brain. And in this particular case, uh, Dr. Richard Ellenbogen, who is the chief of neurosurgery in Seattle, operated on this child for 16 hours. Uh, he was trained at Harvard. He had 25 years of experience. And he stopped the case at the point when he thought he had safely removed as much tumor as he could and not removed normal brain. And when we did the scan on the Wednesday after the surgery, we saw this big piece of cancer that was left behind because with all the tools available to him uh, and all that experience, he thought that was normal brain and he thought he would hurt her if he took it out. So then we're faced with a problem as an oncologist like me uh, do we proceed with radiation and chemotherapy knowing that if there are cells that are resistant in that block of, of cells that were left behind, they will take her life? Or do we take her from the intensive care unit back to the operating room and do a second operation to try to get some of that out? And this is a problem that we still face now 11 years later. Uh, we've had four kids like this just in the last three months where there's big amounts of tumor left after. We have to make those very difficult decisions. So that very day, uh, Dr. Ellenbogen and I decided that we were going to find a way to make the cancer cells light up 
so that surgeons could see them while they're operating. And we're very close to achieving that goal. And I'll show you some of the data that we first uh, generated. Um, this is the molecule that we use to light up the tumors. This is a molecule called chlorotoxin. It comes from the Israeli Deathstalker scorpion. And we use this as a way to deliver a fluorescent light to the cancer cells through the bloodstream. We actually inject this conjugate into the bloodstream. It goes through the whole body, finds just the cancer cells, binds to them, gets flipped inside, and makes the cancer light up. What you see here are the first mice that we studied that had the one on the right has a pediatric brain tumor called a medulloblastoma, and the one that on the left does not have cancer. And you can see that after the injection of tumor paint the day before these images were taken, this mouse doesn't have a signal in its brain, and the mouse that had a brain tumor has a signal exactly where the brain tumor cells are. And you can see almost on a cell-by-cell -cell basis what is cancer and what is normal brain. One of the things I worried about when we did this study was that there's only about three or 400 kids with medulloblastoma diagnosed in the United States. So who's going to pay for hundreds of millions of dollars of clinical trials to create a drug that's just for a few hundred kids, and there really isn't a financial market for it? And so I went around to the different professors at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center where I work, and I borrowed mice that had breast cancer and colon cancer, lung cancer, skin cancer. And we tested tumor paint in any of those, hoping to find even one that it would work in, in addition to the pediatric brain tumors. And against all odds, tumor paint lit up all of those different types of mouse models, both when the tumors were mouse tumors and when we grew human patient tumors inside of mice. And so that gave us the courage and the desire to move forward as rapidly as we could, and we moved from mice to dogs. Now, these dogs were not experimental animals. They're family pets who had developed cancer, and the families brought them to Washington State University Veterinary School for cancer care. And we gave them doses of tumor paint, 27 different dogs with different kinds of cancer. And what you see here is that the sarcoma in this dog lit up beautifully, and the tissue around it didn't light up at all. The signal was 220 times higher in the tumor than in the tissue around it. Here you're seeing a dog that has a mammary carcinoma, or in human patients, we would call it a breast cancer. And this is the tumor that the surgeons knew about, uh, and this is what the surgeons would see. And if you were a surgeon, again, where would you make your incision? What would you take out, and what would you leave behind? Uh, with tumor paint, it was very clear that these areas which are cancerous uh, might or might not have been detected by the surgeon. And so we're in the process of advancing this now from canine patients into human clinical trials. This is an actual photograph of the drug, and you can see the light being emitted uh, even when it's in the bottle. Um, interestingly, we've now done five human clinical trials that are open for patients with skin cancer, with breast cancer, brain tumors, kids with brain tumors in Seattle, uh, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and lung cancer. All those trials are open. I won't be able to show you pictures from them tonight, and the reason for that is because this is under review by the Food and Drug Administration, and we need to give them room to do their job, and so I can't be out in public saying this works and it's safe and all of these sorts of things. One of the patients that, I, that we cared for a long time ago uh, passed away from her brain tumor when she was 14 years old, and in her honor, five of her friends began to raise money for brain tumor research. And this was important because when we first discovered tumor paint, I wrote six different grants for it, and all of them were turned down. Uh, but these girls started having chili cook-offs, or they, they started making greeting cards and having golf tournaments. And over the years, they and their younger sisters and brothers uh, have now raised $1.3 million. Uh, and other patient families have raised altogether nearly $20 million. 
to allow us to go full speed on this work. And part of the reason that I'm showing this tonight is because uh, one of these girls, Sierra Aleph, is here in the audience with us. Uh, she's studying in France right now, and she came over today to London to uh, join us this evening. Uh, this is the little creature that makes the molecule uh, that is the basis of tumor paint, the Israeli death stalker scorpion. And as we transferred tumor paint into a company that would develop it for human clinical trials and go to the FDA, I began questioning what could we do beyond that? What do we do for the kids who have types of brain tumors that can't be surgically removed? How do we get chemotherapy rate to those cancer cells? Or how do we find ways to kill cells that uh, are not easily removed by surgery? And it turns out that a few years ago, our family was vacationing uh, in, Paris, in France. And each day while the kids would sleep in, I would go out for a bike ride. And I went past some fields of sunflowers. And there were signs on the side of the road that said, no pesticides. And the fact that there was no pesticides, and I looked at these flowers, and I saw that there was also no insect bites in the flowers. And if I was a bug and I was hungry, I would go to sunflowers, right? They're bright yellow. They're full of nutrition. And I was really curious as to why these flowers were not eaten by bugs. And it turns out that the sunflowers make a molecule very much like the one that I showed you that the scorpion makes as part of its way of killing its prey. And these molecules don't have sequence homology, meaning that they don't have the same DNA code but they follow the same set of rules. And as I looked into it more and more, we found additional examples of plants and animals that make their own drugs. And we might be able to co-opt these to make new drugs for human patients. The scientists around the world had identified about 300 of these molecules over the past 23 years. And our team found another 206,000 molecules. And the team did it in, a, in about a day and a half. The molecules that we found, we learned that computationally, we could change the shape of these molecules. And we could change the charge of these molecules. And then we could simply order them on the computer. The team types in the code for the new sequences that we want to create new drugs for human patients. The FedEx guy comes on the following Tuesday uh, and hands us an envelope that has 10,000 genes in it. We put those genes into a virus that's a modified HIV virus and use that to inject it into human embryonic kidney cells. And those cells become little factories that make these drugs. So the same molecule that the scorpion makes that we use for tumor paint, now we can make that in a little over a week uh, in the laboratory. Uh, and we can make hundreds of thousands of other molecules. And so now we're in the process of developing these drugs for other types of brain cancers, like this little boy had, that are not surgically operable, uh, where we could deliver chemotherapy directly to the cancer cells and avoid the rest of the body. We're also collaborating with scientists at the University of Washington that are creating a robot that would be able to go. And there's sometimes that a surgeon will be able to take off almost all the, the tumor, but particularly when it's against the brain stem or other places, they know that there's a microscopic uh, layer that's left behind. And they're creating a robot that can actually see the cells that are lit up by tumor paint and can zap those cells and kill them specifically while sparing the other ones uh, that are left behind. So uh, we're taking a couple different approaches to see how we can change the way we practice medicine so that it's not the same in 20 years as it is today. So I'll pause there and wow. let us go back. <laughs> um, thank you. That's fascinating. Um, a whirlwind tour of um, of your lab, which you know, and it really genuinely you are going from kind of from bench to bedside, aren't you? In, Absolutely. In one place. Um, I'm going to ask you a question, which I know Henry was quite keen to know as well. Um, you've talked to us about how you realised that sunflowers might have the same potential, and you've mentioned that you're using comp computational approaches to kind of really scan databases and find more molecules. But you haven't told us um, how on earth you came upon the scorpion 
um, in the first place. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I believe it was a student of yours who's also worked with Henry, so there's That's a nice... That's exactly right. It's, uh, uh, I was very surprised when I was reading Henry's book. Um, I got to the second chapter, and he talked about one of the uh, residents from our program that was training with him. And he didn't give his name, but uh, he mentioned that he was an Armenian with quite a uh, way of letting you know what he's thinking. And I thought, <laughs> that must be Patrick. <laughs> and so Patrick Abikian was the neurosurgery resident who uh, came to my lab after Dr. Ellen Bogan and I decided that we wanted to find a way to light up these tumors. <clears throat> and he came into my lab with the goal of he wanted to do what were called at that time microarray experiments, where he would measure all the genes that were expressed in the cancer measure all the genes that were expressed in the normal brain, see what was different, and determine whether he could develop a drug that would go to the tumor but not to the normal brain. Well, that sounds good in theory, but the problem was that Patrick was only going to be in my lab for a year. And so I said to him, Patrick, you may be a neurosurgeon, but you are not Superman, and there's no way that you'll be able to accomplish all that in a year. So I'm not going to give you a bench in my lab. Instead, what I want you to do is to go through what other scientists have written about, because one of the great things about scientific research is that we share everything that we learn with all the other scientists. And I said, I'm sure that there are other scientists who have looked to see what's different between the brain tumor and the normal brain. And then when they found it, they didn't know what to do with it, so they just published a paper that had a big list of genes in it. So I want you to start there. And so every day for six weeks, Patrick would go through these databases in the literature looking for possibilities. He'd read all the papers and come in at about 6 o'clock at night and he would go through all of his data and say, this is the one that I think looks best from today. These are the two or three backups. And each day I would say, that's not going to work for these reasons or these reasons. And we'd kill all his ideas. And each day we had an argument at the end of the day because he wanted to do his own <laughs> experiments. And I said, no, you have to go to the computer. And after about six weeks of this, he came to me and he said, you know, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But I read about this work that Harold Suntimer is doing in Alabama. And he's trying to understand how some toxins in venoms from things like scorpions and spider block the ion channels that let salt molecules go in and out of our cells. And he happens to be studying this chlorotoxin molecule from the Israeli deathstalker scorpion, and he happens to be using glioblastoma cells to study it because they have the type of chloride ion channel that it blocks. And I said, that's really interesting because that type of chloride ion channel isn't in the normal brain. Mm -hmm. uh, and if there's ever an animal or a plant that could make a molecule that would get across the blood-brain barrier and yeah. into the brain, it would be from a scorpion because they need to paralyze their prey. So let's try it. Yeah. Let's put the fluorescent tag on it, inject it into a mouse that has a human <clears throat> brain tumor on its back. And we did that, and about an hour later, the tumor started glowing, wow. and the rest of the mouse was not glowing. And so Patrick and I were two grown men in white lab coats at the Fred Hodge <laughs> Cancer Center. We were dancing in the hallways. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that was the beginning of it. And usually when you get a nice finding like that in science, quite often, two or three weeks later, you get a piece of data that says you were really going the wrong way and that it was spurious. Yeah. Uh, but now in 11 years, each time we've done an experiment, it has brought us closer and closer to something that I hope will be an effective drug to help uh, surgeons in the future and, and particularly patients. Yeah. Does it depend on breakdown of the blood-brain barrier? It doesn't. That's one it of the things. It doesn't, because that's yeah. a critical difference. Isn't yeah, it? so... Yeah. Um, very importantly, as Henry points out, there's a little molecular layer inside the blood vessels in the brain called the blood-brain barrier that is there to protect our brain. It keeps chemicals out of the brain, and it, in fact, it keeps about 99% of drugs out of the brain, uh, which is a good thing in most cases. Um, but if you want to image brain tumors, um, even though some of them have broken blood-brain barriers, many of them don't, and the ones with broken blood-brain barriers 
still have some of the most important cells to get out where the blood-brain barrier is intact. And this particular molecule does go across the blood-brain barrier and get into the brain. In the past few months, we've found four other molecules from other scorpions that also get into the brain, and we're now using those as a basis for drugs that would treat Alzheimer's disease or autism or schizophrenia or other diseases beyond brain tumors. Uh, we're starting to collaborate with other scientists on those projects. Wow, wow really. Things don't normally happen that fast, six weeks. It's really, it's really <laughs> going fast right now. Yeah, and it sounds like it still is. Absolutely. Um, I mean, so one of the things that I, you know, you've both talked about is this, you know, the, the kind of the empathy that you have with the families. Um, um, and Henry, I know that, you know, you're able to empathise because of personal experience. And Jim, this is something that you kind of managed early on. Um, I mean, is that, is that in any sense... Is that what motivates you both? Is that what is a, is it a kind of an empathy for or an understanding of the patient and a desire to to treat or to kind of cure? Well, I mean, Jim's a physician. I'm a surgeon, yeah. and as a surgeon, my wife is a writer. Gets cross when I talk about being brutalised, but you do have to have a certain a certain iron in the soul in a way to do it. And in fact, you you have to make very difficult decisions. All about balancing risk. And I've sometimes in my career, I've made the wrong decision because actually I was too, too attached to the patient. You know, yeah. sometimes it's often, it's very important in cancer work to know when to stop. Yeah. Um, it, it's maybe less of a problem in this country than in America because we've got less money to spend on healthcare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, English, English patients and English doctors are all a bit more reserved mm -hmm. uh, than American ones are. So it's a very different culture. Yeah. America, I mean, it's generalisable. I said when my American trainees would come and work with me in London, but also how incredibly easy English patients were. They were just, they were so deferential and accepting, yeah. you know, and I've been on <laughs> rounds in Seattle, and a lot of the pet families are there, you know, Googling what the advice is given, talking, yeah. that? more or less talking to their lawyer on the phone <laughs> while the doctors are going around. So it's a, it's a, it's a, in some ways, a more adversarial relationship, a certainly more consumer-orientated relationship, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. All these things are, are a question of balance. Um, it's a curious fact, because my wife's the anthropologist, Kate Fox, who wrote a very successful book called Watching in English that some of you might know, but she, at one point, was doing quite a lot of lectures for GPs about Englishness, particularly for foreign doctors coming to work in this country, trying to understand why, why the English are quite odd, you know, the way we... <clears throat> often say the opposite of what we mean yeah. and <laughs> yeah. irony and understatement and it's all an elaborate game which many people, especially Americans, don't always, don't always understand. <laughs> but um, it, is, it is a fact, it's very curious and some of the GP trainers are talking to her about this and I confirmed it. When medical students apply for medical school, we all cringe a bit when, if they say, I want to help people. It's sort of, you're not supposed to say that. Um, and maybe it's the same in the States. But the irony is, at the end of the day, that's what motivates most of us. <laughs> yeah. And why somehow you shouldn't say it overtly, I still, still don't quite understand. There certainly is some deep, deep psychology to that. We don't like sort of do-gooders, but we do want to do good. Mm -hmm. And although, I mean, it's, it's a common sort of throwaway joke that lots of surgeons are psychopaths, but the... If you, if you look at the strict definition of psychopathy, the, the Bob Hare checklist, most of the domains don't apply to surgeons. But, but the ones about sort of 
Some of them do, an exaggerated sense of their own importance and superficial charm and things like that are true to some yeah. extent. <laughs> but it's something you have, to, you have to do it to some extent. It comes of a job. And also what's often seen as arrogance in surgeons, which in a sense is arrogance, is also self-protection. Yeah. Because if, if you, I mean, the, way to, the easiest way to explain that is to say, obviously, the only ethical imperative in medicine is to treat patients as you would yourself or you'd want your family to be yeah. treated. At the same time, you try operating on somebody you know well, or even a member of your own family. It's almost impossible. I once operated on a very close friend with a malignant brain tumor. It was a very simple biopsy operation. I'd agreed, although I wasn't keen to do it, but the family were very close friends, and for obvious reasons, they wanted me to do it. And even though that was the simplest operation, just involved sort of dialing up numbers on something called a stereotactic frame, I found it almost impossible, because yeah. all, my, all my professional detachment had been lost. Yeah. And it was a very clear illustration to me that you, you, know, you have to be detached and some, at the same time, and, and get that balance right yeah. is, is, is very difficult. Um, and sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. And there's no, there's, no easy, there's no easy answer how to do that. Can you teach empathy? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, there are certain... I mean, the other problem about talking to patients, and I'm sure the same is more or less true in America, as, as patients, we all, our default position is, well, doctors should be able to... You know, they're doctors, therefore, they must be able to talk well and break bad news well. And if they don't, it means they're bad doctors. But everything in life, we learn by criticism, by feedback, by making mistakes. And the one thing you scarcely ever get in medicine is any feedback on yeah. how well you had a painful conversation. The patients don't ring me up next morning and say, Mr. Marsh, you told me I was going to die really nicely. Or Mr. Marsh, you're absolute, <laughs> or, Mr. Marsh, you're absolute crap. You know, so, you, <laughs> sort of, so you're kind of feeling your way, and it takes years. And yeah. Although I might be wrong, I think... I learned most, really, from my own family and my own experiences and friends mm. who have been, have been at the receiving end of medical treatment. And I was talking to my cardiac surgical colleague in, in Karachi last, this, this last week. He was saying how he knows some very, very good pediatric cardiac surgeons who had us a run of bad results, which happens, and just fell apart. And mm. you, know, you find it very hard to go on operating. So it is, it is it's a delicate, delicate balance to strike. Um, but there are some simple rules, which I'm sure I do occasionally break. Like, you know, always sit down when you have a serious conversation. It may sound obvious, but an awful lot of the time, some of the bouncing people, you know, talking to relatives, telling them the most terrible things, standing in a corridor, things mm. like that. Yeah. So always sit down. I don't think we're supposed to sit on patients' beds nowadays for infection control reasons. But, but if you think about it, just, you know, the doctor sitting on the bed immediately, yeah. it, it's, uh, it's a kind gesture. Yeah. And whatever you say... Yeah. It's going to sound better. Yeah. And even if you only spend 30 seconds talking to the patient, the fact you sit down, you're at the same level as they are, mm -hmm. it is important. And those sort of things can be taught, yeah. except in the NHS wards, there usually isn't room to put a chair yeah. between the beds, <laughs> and there usually isn't a chair. You know? So it sounds like you've got kind of an empathy and an attachment kind of working together. Or yes, it's two, it's two sides of a coin, and yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to get it right. And, so, um, yeah, Jim, I mean, I know you kind of approach it kind of differently. You kind of accept that there is an anxiety or a pressure mm -hmm. um, that's going to come either way, I think mm -hmm. you said. Right. And I think one of the big differences is that I'm not operating, and the child's life is not 
in my hands for those next three hours uh, where an error or thinking about, you know, what if, what if I make a mistake? So I do think that there's a difference between surgery uh, and the type of care that I give, which occurs over months or years, seeing the family every week uh, and, you know, building that relationship from the very beginning, I think, is, yeah. is, is critically important. Um, it was interesting to hear um, that, you know, the, the concept of, in America, it's a little bit more consumer-based uh, healthcare system. One of the things that I noticed was when I was a young physician, uh, I looked young for my age, and when I go in the room, the families would say, like, are you Doogie Howser? When is the real doctor going to come in? <laughs> uh, and, and, and they just really gave me, you know, this like, uh, you know, we'd really like to be cared for by somebody who knows something about medicine. That was the reverse for me. They all thought I was the senior doctor. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then, the well, the, the crazy thing was my, my hair turned white over the course of less than a year. And then uh, all my patients would say, you know, is there somebody that might be a little younger that would be a little more on top of things uh, <laughs> who, could, who, who could see me? So I had like the six-month window where I was just like the doctors on TV. <laughs> I had just enough gray to yeah. be knowledgeable. And <laughs> yeah. so, so and there is, the, you know, those are, those are very big differences. And, and, yeah. uh, but I, you know, we do probably, maybe to a fault, break down barriers. Uh, within my team in mm. Seattle, I think it's even different than in other parts of the United States. I mentioned that we have the families come down, you know, even years after their child has been cured or has died, and get together as a community, as a family. Mm. Uh, the first time that my wife Sally and I hosted one of those events, it was at our house, and we had about 90 parents down that night, and we drank wine and we ate food and we danced out on the deck to a band. And the next morning when I woke up, after the 90 people went home that night, there were 80 empty bottles of wine. And, <laughs> and I realized that, you know, that's a, that's a barrier that's broken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there would probably be a lot less space and a lot more wine if we did it in the UK, but anyway. <laughs> um, I'm going to open up, I believe we've got a couple of roving mics, and I'm sure that there's a lot of people with um, questions. Um, ah, there you are. Does the, um, the tumor uh, light up circulating uh, tumor cells or just solid tumors? That's a really great question. And, and we've had several uh, stem, cancer stem cell laboratory heads reach out to us to ask us that question. And we want to do those experiments. One of the challenges that we face is because we developed this and did the discovery work in a small academic lab, and now the development of work is being done by a small biotech company, We've had the blinders on the whole time. And so there are really important questions like that that we just haven't had time or the manpower to answer. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that there's a difference between big pharma and little biotech companies. Um, everything that we've done so far has cost less than $20 million. Um, an average drug that gets approved through a drug company costs four to $11 billion. And certainly if this was being developed in a drug company, they would know that answer by now. But we haven't been able to answer it for those kind of reasons. Yeah, it seems to be the same through, um, I have osteosarcoma, I finished chemo a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. um, and everything is very, very, very small, so mm -hmm. you have to kind of find yeah. this kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, and you have to search very widely. Right, And right. everybody says the same thing, that the, the, the big trials has maybe won a decade of, of sort of 1,000 patient plus trials. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're working with yeah, very small amounts of money and small num numbers of people, just right. not many of us. We're very keen to find out that question. And, and as you're suggesting, for tumor surveillance, yeah. if 
following treatment, it would be outstanding. Uh, we, we all see the value there, and we're hoping that we can get to it as soon as we can. Yeah. Congratulations on finishing your oh, treatment. You. I'm sorry that you had to go through it. No, it's horrible. Not as I am. I'm just going to ask a question quickly now of Henry. I mean, you were talking a little bit beforehand about um, the, the difference that this kind of tumour paint would and could make in... Um, in you know, for your line of work. Well, there, there's a problem to... with the tumours I was talking about, degrioglimus, because they can actually infiltrate functioning brain. There's mm -hmm. a variety of glioma called gliomatosis cerebri, which histologically is a low-grade, not sort of his classically cancerous tumour, mm -hmm. but is actually invading the whole of the brain. And these people are functionally normal, mm -hmm. um, more or less, but they've ended up raised intracranial pressure and die. So you're still left, even, even if you have a, a, a successful tumour plane, it would be marvellous for some cases. There'll still be many other cases where surgery isn't the answer because you can't pick out individual cells from the brain, even, even with a robot. And I'm often asked, what is there? What great technical breakthroughs will there be for brain surgery in the future? And I always say, well, actually, progress in brain surgery is to make brain surgery unnecessary. And in the 35 years I've been doing it, a lot of it has become unnecessary. They've been replaced with more minimally invasive or focused radiation <coughs> techniques, which is bad news for brain surgeons, but very good news for patients. Yep. And I, the progress to me, and if there's good progress in brain surgery, is to make surgery increasingly unnecessary. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's somebody on this side here. I can just see. So, yeah, go ahead. Hello. Sorry if I missed this. When you say light up, do you mean fluorescent or ultraviolet light, or is that the kind of thing we're talking about, or am I way off the mark? It, it's fluorescent, but rather than being ultraviolet, it's in the near-infrared end of the spectrum. So we use a molecule <coughs> called indocyanine green, uh, and the surgeon excites it with a laser that shines light at 680 nanometer, and then the fluorescence comes back. The reason we chose the near-infrared spectrum is because there's very little autofluorescence at that at that particular wavelength, so the brain isn't fluorescing itself. If, if we were down in the red and green space, you'd see bright signals coming from the brain. And also, the wavelengths in the near-infrared spectrum will go through normal tissue. So we can actually see tumors that are beneath a normal layer of skin. And if you just move your head a little bit, you can see exactly where they are, how deep they are, uh, and go after them. We've got a question at the back there. T two questions. Um, as far as I understood it, look, it's quite easy to kill cells, but the difficulty of chemotherapy, that kind of thing, is killing the right cells and not the wrong cells. And I remember from, from years ago reading about two things, which was um, one of which was like light-activated chemotherapies, whereby you could, as long as you could get it somewhere nearby, you can flash light, that kind of thing. So in a long-winded way, what I'm saying is, if you've done the, the difficult bit, which is getting something that can target the right cells, A, instead of making them fluoresce, why, I and mean, you've obviously thought of this, why aren't you just killing them? We're adding in an siRNA or something else that can, that can kill it. Or B, couldn't you put in a drug which would be light activated and then use the fluorescence to kill it with that? So um, we are working on the first part of the question, which is could we deliver a chemotherapy or a toxin right to the cells using this? The reason we didn't do that with chlorotox in the molecule that we use for tumor paint is because in our hands, in our lab, when we had it conjugated to a molecule called Psi 5.5 in our preclinical work, a lot of it went to the liver and to the spleen in addition to the cancer. Uh, and so if we had put a toxin on it, it would have caused potentially tox toxic damage to those organs. So we have since found another molecule that 
is preferentially going to tumors without going to the liver and the spleen. It's still early days for that, but potentially adding a toxin onto that could do exactly what you're suggesting. The phototherapy that you mentioned uh, has been an area that I think has been a big disappointment to myself and to many other people in the field. It sounded so good, um, and yet with about more than 30 years of experience using it in human patients, um, even for cancers like cancers of the esophagus where they're shallow tumors, at best it can provide a little bit of palliation at this point. It does shaves off a millimeter or two, mm -hmm. doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It can't, can't go deeper. Yeah, so it's, I think, you know, one of the challenges with light is that most light doesn't penetrate through tissue very deeply. Uh, and, and, it's, and also, the other thing that we all have to remember is that cancer cells, some of them are programmed to not die no matter what you do to them. Um, and so that's part of the reason that I emphasize that we're not trying to get out every cancer cell in the body. What we're trying to do is get out the bulky cancer because that's where a lot of these mechanisms of resistance occur. Uh, and so if you can get it down to microscopic disease, then sometimes the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy will take care of the rest. Thank you. Um, the lady up here. Hi. So um, this molecule, this um, toxin that, that you managed to isolate, does it have any um, like negative effects to the mice or the people? taking it, because obviously, if it's a toxin, it's meant to kill. Right. Um, <laughs> what did you do to it to make it not do that? Well, um, it has a terribly, mis it's been terribly misnamed. <laughs> um, the, when a scorpion <clears throat> makes a venom, the venom actually has thousands of proteins or peptides, and very few of those are actually toxic. They each have a different role some will block sodium ion channels, some will block potassium ion channels, and cumulatively, they might paralyze the prey for a short period of time. So they're more like accessory proteins to the main Yeah, yeah so, thing. well, in, in this particular case, um, we have not seen any dose-limiting toxicity in our human patients. Uh, research animals have received as much as a thousand times the dose that we use in human patients with no concerning side effects. Uh, we've treated over a thousand mice and have never seen uh, anything that looked worrisome. Uh, and I can't really comment on the human clinical trials uh, other than to say that we completed the first trial that was a safety trial, and then we were allowed to proceed to the second, third, fourth, and fifth trials. Uh, so without going into detail about it, uh, what I can say is that uh, I'm hopeful that we'll learn that this is a very safe molecule. Um, and. Uh, and, and that it was just misnamed, which they hadn't called it chlorotoxin. I thought you were going to say that scorpions made very nice household pits. You know, they, <laughs> they were right. much maligned. <laughs> That's right. Okay, just uh, sort of getting away from the scorpions for a minute and thinking about the future of medicine, if you like. I, you, both of you alluded to the role of empathy and the role of patient-to-patient -patient, um, contact in delivering care, but you also talked about... Googling things and technology to come in the way of stuff, and, and you've got the robot surgery now. And I just wondered, looking into the future, how you see that tension between the need to sort of keep your empathy as a, as a, as a clinician, but also the increasing role of um, technology in, in how we interact with healthcare and how things might look in 20, 30 years' time. Who wants to go first? <laughs> I, 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 do, I don't see how it would make a difference, really. Patients will remain patients, ill people remain ill people. I don't think the human side of it will change very much. 
And I, I, did, I personally have never, I mean, neurosurgery is relatively high tech, I suppose. But I, 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 don't, I see no conflict between, between increasing the sophisticated technology and the, the more humane side of the practice myself. I, I tend to agree. I think that the um, technology has changed so much just in, from the time that you and I started practicing medicine till now uh, that a lot of patients wouldn't recognize. You know, people come in for very short procedures now that used to be long-term hospitalizations. Um, and, and I think it's going to continue. The technology is taking us to wonderful new places. If you look at cancer as an example, you know, within five years, my guess is that half of all cancer patients will be on a medicine that just simply helps their own immune system recognize the cancer cells and knock them out. Uh, we're, we're already gaining ground on that very rapidly. And so, you know, what that, what that will mean is that uh, more than likely more patients will survive, uh, less time in the hospital. Um, but there's still going to be the anxiety when you first tell a patient that they have cancer. There's still going to be, you know, the risk of letting the immune system free uh, and that it might recognize your gut or your brain and cause serious side effects. So all the things that we face are still going to be present. I think it's been a fascinating evening. I could sit here and uh, talk all evening, well, listen all evening. Um, but I know some people have got trains to catch. So um, if you'd join me in giving the two speakers a round of applause. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for a recording of our discourse with Anil Seth on the neuroscience of consciousness.